great. You know, I'm high income and I get a $61,000 tax deduction. Thanks so much. What a great idea. But it gets better. Welcome to episode 16 of the Phi Lighter Podcast. Today we have Sean Mullaney, the Phi Tax Guy, talking about Solo 401k, the Solopreneur's Retirement Account. Sean Mullaney is a financial planner and, and president of Mullaney Financial and Tax, where he offers fiduciary, fee-only, and advice-only financial planning. Many of us know Sean as the Phi Tax Guy as he highlights the tax-efficient path to financial independence. Sean established his business after a lengthy career in public accounting in the tax departments of both Deloitte and & Touche and PwC, including over six years in PricewaterhouseCoopers Washington National Tax Services practice. Sean has discussed personal finance in several podcasts and YouTube channels, and today we bring Sean to episode 16 of the Lighter podcast. Say hello, Sean. Paul, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. Before we get into our discussion, let me remind our listeners that any information you hear in this podcast or read in blogs or references in the show notes is for education and entertainment only. This is not financial advice. Seek a professional expert for your unique facts and circumstances if you need financial advice. Okay, Sean, let's get started. One of the things that... Uh, that I was interested in is, is just a little bit more about your background. I will say, you know, I think we met originally in Austin last year at the FinCon 21 conference. Uh, things were just coming back to life after COVID. And uh, I had an opportunity to sit with you at a Choose Fi uh, hosted luncheon. I believe that's when I met you. I think that's right, Paul. Yeah, it was great. Well, there's a special reason we're talking today. Uh, you've got a milestone event coming up next week. It'll be the when we release this episode, actually. Uh, what What's going on, Sean? So on October 4th, my first book, Solo 401k, The Solopreneur's Retirement Account, launches. It'll be available for purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other online outlets for books, and real excited about that. And it really ties into my own personal journey. I was a career W-2 worker until age 40. I worked for, like you said, uh, big four accounting firms. I did a stint with the IRS. And I always, you know, I was in corporate tax and that was a good career and it was very beneficial. But I had that itch to scratch on the personal finance side. So at age 40, I left big four accounting and ultimately set up my own solo financial planning practice. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the personal finance side now. And as part of that journey, I needed to set up my own retirement account, right? So when you're at a big four accounting firm, eventually you get an email from HR saying, hey, we have this 401k, please set up your contribution level, your investment allocation election, all that good stuff. When you go out on your own, nobody from HR emails you, hey, here's the retirement plan options, right? So you have to do it on your, your own. And so, you know, with, with respect to the solo 401k, I like to joke that I'm both a pusher and a user, right? So I encounter it when I talk to clients, I have it in my own life. 
And, you know, I think solo 401k is such a great opportunity for those who, like myself, work for themselves. There's such a great tax planning opportunity here, such a great opportunity to build up retirement savings. And a lot of folks just don't know about it. There's a lot of confusion out there about it. And so that's a big part of the reason why I wrote the book. And I hope it has an impact in terms of being an educational resource, frankly, for end users and for advisors. I think advisors also need a lot of education in this area. Right. So you're telling me you practice what you preach. You actually have your own solo 401k plan. Absolutely, Paul. Yeah. How long have you had one? I've had one since 2020, actually. So, okay. um, you know, I set up my business in 2019, set up my own solo 401k in 2020. I have my own and I've seen it with clients where, oh, here's a really good opportunity for some tax advantage savings. Maybe we get a tax deduction. I will say I've seen some confusion in this area, too, even among practitioners. This is just an area, you know, so, Paul, you mentioned the Choose a Five podcast. There's so many great content creators out there in the personal finance space. I frankly think this is one of those areas that has just not gotten enough coverage, hasn't gotten enough ink, enough podcast episodes. And so I hope with my book, I'm raising some awareness and you know, getting the word out there that there's this real great tax planning opportunity when you go into self-employment and you know, people worry about leaving W-2 jobs. And look, I myself had some anxiety around that process, not gonna lie. But one of the really cool benefits is when you start making money in self-employment, your retirement options actually improve oftentimes vis-a-vis W-2 workers at large employers. And so that's part of the reason I wrote the book to get the word out there. Hey, there's this really good uh, planning opportunity on the table, but you got to take some affirmative action to take advantage of it. Let's just carve into that a little bit. I spent most of my career in a corporate world uh, with the the 401k option, just like you mentioned earlier, and having that limit on how much you could put into your 401k. And then once you turn 50, you can put a little more in it. But it seemed like there was kind of a cap. And the example you just put out there, you know, like solopreneurs or people with their own businesses, there's a different limit for some of these things. And then there's other things like uh, qualified business income that enter into this giant mishmash equation. Generally, what's the biggest difference between the corporate 401k and someone's uh, ability to utilize a solo 401k? Well, Paul, I'm going to give you two answers to that question. The first big difference is as a solopreneur, you get to make the decisions in terms of the financial institution you're using and the investments available, right? When you're a large employer, they offer a 401k plan. They use financial institution X. Well, that's it, right? You need to invest through that financial institution, and it's the investment menu that they provide. You don't get to elect that investment menu. Right. So those investments could could have uh, higher expense burdens. They could not be uh, the diversification target you want to get to. You don't control what's in that investment plan when you're at a corporate employer. And I, and, and I remember the challenges reading that information and making selections that were more appropriate for low uh, low cost index type fund options. And there were hardly almost uh, none in there. Yeah, Paul. So my experience with my own clients is 401k plans at large employers are getting better. I will say that. I think Absolutely. in a general sense, they're getting better. But that said, they're not perfect. And look, there's no perfect answer out there. But when you're the solopreneur and you run the solo 401k, you get to 
choose among all the financial institutions out there that offer solo 401ks, and many do, many of the most popular discount brokerages out there offer solo 401k plans. And you can say, look, I like this particular financial institution for whatever reason. It might be low fees. It might be the user interface on the website. It may be the investment options available. It could be combinations of all those things and more, right? But you're now in control of the investments, the financial institution, the fees, the contours of the plan in a way that you were not in control when you worked for a large employer. So that's the first big difference and advantage of the solo 401k over a large employer 401k. The second has to do with contribution limits, right? And we have this fiction out there, right? The, the fiction says, well, Congress sets the contribution limits for 401k plan contributions, and then the IRS does these annual inflation adjustments. And that is correct so far as it's said, right? That is technically right. correct. But as a practical matter, your contribution limits are mostly set by your employer. Now, let's think about two different types of contributions. One contribution is an employee contribution. 2022 number is 20,500, goes up to 27,000 if you're age 50 or more. That limit basically is set by Congress and the IRS inflation adjustments, right? Your employer doesn't really get to limit that generally. That's a hard limit. Yeah. That's a pretty hard limit. But where the employer really gets to set the limit, not so much IRS and Congress, is the employee contribution. So I want to take you through a quick numerical example. I hope your listeners have had their first cup of coffee. This won't be so bad, yeah. right? But I promise uh, you guys, it won't be bad. It won't be too bad. So think about you work for a large uh, W-2 employer. Great. You have a $100,000 salary. Great. That employer says, we will match uh, in the 401k plan up to 6% of salary at 50 cents on the dollar, a 50, uh, 50% match. That's great, right? So if you put up to $6,000 into the 401k this year as an employee contribution, they'll contribute $3,000, 50% of that $6,000. So you get a 50%, $3,000 employer contribution to the 401k at your large employer. That's great. That helps people build wealth. Let's flip that though. Let's say you don't work for a large employer anymore. You, now you're self-employed and you qualify for a solo 401k. You already did that 20500 employee contribution. You can then also do as an employer, you get to wear both hats. As an employer, you can contribute another $18,500 and a little change actually. So instead of being limited to a $3,000 employer contribution at a large employer, you now can contribute up to 18500 and a little change, like I said, to the solo 401k as the employer. You can get more than six times the amount as an employer into the solo 401k because now the only limits are the IRS and congressional limits and your own cash flow. Those are the only limits. You know, That's it. So the solo 401k can get a whole lot more, in my example, more than double total contributions well, not more than double, almost double uh, the total contributions because you are now the employer and you fully control those contributions, not the large W-2 employer that's looking to limit their expenses, right? To be fair, they're in a business too. They got to limit their expenses. Right, right. So that's the real big advantage of the solo 401k vis-a-vis -vis the large employer 401k. 
Wow. Okay. I don't want to pour cold water on this topic, but I think you just said something that was very important. And that was that your business has to have the cash flow to actually make these contributions into these funds during the right period to claim those, uh, you know, for tax purposes in a tax year. So it is important that you have a healthy business, right? Absolutely, Paul. Um, so that is a great uh, disclaimer, right? So you can't just have a hobby and you have no cash flow and now we're going to put all this money in a solo 401k. It doesn't work that way. And you do need to get the business right first, right? Before you can really, you know, really start cooking with gas with these solo 401ks. That said, there is a big cash flow advantage of the solo 401k versus the large employer 401k for those who report their self-employment income on Schedule C. And that's the timing, the deadline for the contributions, right? So at work, you know, every year when you do your employee contributions, you have to do that through payroll withholding. So basically, December 31st is the deadline for the employee contribution. Yeah, it comes out of your check, right? Yeah, it comes right out of your payroll, um, which is fine. That's great. There's a mechanism by which you could actually elect to make the contributions during the year you're earning the money. And then after year end, before you file your tax return, so that could be April 15th, could be as late as October 15th with an extension, you can make your prior year employee deferrals into the solo 401k that way. So that's more time you would have to generate the cash flow to actually fund the contribution. Uh, it doesn't change the limits because the limits are based on income from the prior year. But in terms of cash, you have a little more time to generate the cash. And then same thing with the employee contribution in terms of the deadline. You don't even have to do the election in this case. You can do the employer contribution uh, after the year end as well. And you have up until the tax return filing deadline for that too. So there's a little bit of a timing benefit when we're self-employed versus when we work at a large uh, W-2 employer. So let's talk through a scenario there. Let's say you're bopping along starting your business and in the first year, you're, you're putting money back into it, you're marketing, you're growing the business. And then let's say the second year, it really starts to run. You're telling me that and I always didn't generally file an extension. And so our tax return will be going in here shortly. But in October of the next year, let's say things have gone really well. And now I have adequate cash resources that I could go back and actually fund the prior year's contribution uh, as an employer, right? Or uh, I assume, uh, and lower my tax obligation, even though I've made my quarterly payments and things like that, right? On the employer side, absolutely. That's very easy to do. Basically, what you do is you get your Schedule C prepared. You say, okay, for let's just say we're doing this for 2021, right? So right. on the employer side, you get your Schedule C prepared for the year 2021. You say, okay, I made 10000 of net profit. And then you have to run through the, the limits right? that the IRS prescribes. The IRS actually has a pretty good worksheet on this. So for those with internet access listening to this, you could just Google IRS Publication 560. It's actually a pretty good resource. You can find in that publication a worksheet in Chapter 5 of that publication that helps you compute the, the allowable maximum employer contribution to a solo 401k. But you can say, okay, I've got 10000 in my Schedule C last year. I was just starting up like you're saying. And in that scenario, you get about $1,850 in as an employer contribution after year end. Now, on the employee side, 
two things have to happen before you're able to do that after year-end funding, right? One, the solo 401k needs to be set up by year-end, so by December 31st. And then two, you need to file with yourself. You basically email yourself, make sure you keep this. You just email yourself an election to make an employee contribution uh, you know, to the maximum allowed or whatever you're thinking. But as long as those two things happen by year end, you could fund an employee contribution if you're a Schedule C solopreneur after year end as well. So absolutely, Paul, it may be the case that you, know, you could do some after year end planning in this regard. But for that employee contribution, it's very important. You guys still do some of that planning, getting the solar 401k set up, getting the election in place prior to January 1st of the following year. So, yeah, let's talk a little more about step one. Step one is actually setting that 401k, uh, solo 401k plan up. Because once it exists, then you have the option of making contributions and, and deferrals as an employer or an employee. But that first step, you know, a lot of people get uh, a little nervous when they start talking about tax purposes and retirement plans. But uh, a small solopreneur with a consulting business or whatever business they have, what is the easiest roadmap? And by that, I mean, uh, are these plans easy to set up? Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, I mean, all these kind of firms, they have these plans, right? And, and is that a complicated process? So it's not a complicated process. I will say this, though. It's more complicated versus just setting up a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. Right. Right. I actually talk about this process uh, in chapter six of my book. So what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to go to the Internet portal of your favored financial institution. And beforehand, you should do some research, right, because you should say, you know, which institutions offer which investments, what fees do they have the Roth option? If I want it, do I not want the Roth option? There's some research you should do for your own particular circumstances beforehand. But once you settle in, all right, this is the financial institution I want to set up my solo 401k with. Generally speaking, they have online portals and it generally requires a digital signature. I, I like to think of it this way. The folks in life who have been through life's you know, administrative processes, getting a driver's license, getting a passport, signing up for the SAT, those sorts of things. Generally speaking, those f- folks can go and do this online process with their favorite financial institution. Um, I'm not saying that there will never be complexities, but this is one of those administrative tasks that's certainly manageable. Sometimes some people are going to need some professional assistance with it, but many can do it them, themselves. Um, you know, one thing I also like to say about that is you don't want to be the person trying to set this thing up on New Year's Eve, right? Because right, you're probably right. not going to be successful. It's not like a Roth IRA where you could probably do that in an hour or less. Yeah. But if you know, that's part of the reason the book launches October 4th, and that's with some intention. Because October is such a great time to do the planning for this stuff, right? You have uh, nine months worth of income and expenses in your business already in. You have at least some visibility into, you know, fourth quarter, what those income and expenses look like. And you still have plenty of time to set up that solo 401k with your preferred financial institution. Right. Think about that. You know, the timing is important. Uh, You don't want to be rushed to do these things. And you also kind of have you know, the fourth quarter runway to say, you know, if we have the resources, we got an idea kind of how we want to make contributions during this year as well. So 
setting it up and, and having it ready gives you those options and opportunities. Let's talk a little bit about kind of some of the merits and if you could, could kind of compare and contrast the simple, there, there's other plans, SEP IRA, uh, you know, SEP plans, you know, there's there's a landscape of, of personal financial retirement options for solopreneurs. And this is one of them. Can you maybe kind of contrast this against the others and why this is like the best tool for certain scenarios? And then what tools might be better for other types of businesses? And then also the scale, and I know I'm making this a long question, but if I'm that solopreneur and I have X dollars to put into my retirement, should I be funding a Roth first? Should I be funding a, a traditional IRA? Should it be an after-tax contribution to a solo 401k? And then you mentioned also the different providers. Isn't there like a plan document? So some providers might allow some things that other providers don't allow. There's kind of a cloud there in my mind of, you know, how do you prioritize? And then, and then what are the options there? Yeah. So great question, Paul. And it's a multi-parter, but when you write a book about the solo 401k, you should anticipate some multi-part I know questions. there's a, cha- yeah, there's a chapter for all of these and that's why it's <laughs> in my head because when you read this, it's just all in there baking and swirling and, and uh, uh, I want to make sure people understand the book is very well organized by specific topic. It's just that... Uh, there's there's a lot of different things to think about. Yeah, and, and the book is not meant to be a one-and-done read, okay, got the point, move on with my life. It's meant to be, okay, there's some education and I got some points, but there's also meant to be some reference, right? Hey, maybe, you know what, I, I sort of get some initial impressions here, but I'll come back to this as a reference tool in the future, right, from an right. educational perspective. All right, let's talk about the three main options for solopreneurs. The first two, one is a simple IRA. A simple IRA allows uh, employee contributions. I'm forgetting the limit. It might be $13,500 now. It's a a smaller limit than solo 401ks, and it allows very modest employer contributions. The simple, for the most part, for most solopreneurs, the simple is not going to be the way to go because of the much smaller contribution limits. The other thing about a simple is, if you have a simple, you don't, you're not allowed to have any other retirement plan through your self-employment. So there's a, a variety of reasons why the simple is generally speaking disfavored. Simples can be good when we have multiple employees and we want to give them a little bit of a tax deferral option. That's where I think the simple sort of has its, its best juice. Not a great plan for a solopreneur with no employees. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the first option for the solopreneur. Second option is the SEP IRA. I have a whole chapter about SEP IRA versus solo 401k, but let me break it down. Two main points. One, SEP IRA does not allow employee contributions. The solo 401k allows employee contributions. So in many fact patterns, it's going to be true that the solo 401k allows a whole lot more in contributions because you can get the 20500 in employee contributions plus the employer contributions. SEP IRA is only going to allow the employer contributions. Second thing about the SEP IRA that I disfavor is no ability to do Roth contributions as of now, as of you know Q4 2022. Uh, that could always change. Congress could change that rule. Uh, the House passed a bill to change that, but the Senate hasn't passed it yet, and you know we'll see. But the SEP does not allow for Roth contributions. So if if it's true that 
the SEP does not allow for Roth contributions and doesn't allow employee contributions. The simple just has much lower limits. Then in most cases where you qualify for the solo 401k, I believe the solo 401k is going to be the optimal uh, answer vis-a-vis those two other options because solo 401k does allow Roth contributions and has in most cases, not all cases, but most cases, the largest contribution limit. There could be higher income levels where a SEP and the solo actually have the same contribution limit. Okay. So that's why I prefer the solo to the SEP and to the simple. Okay. In terms of this issue of traditional versus Roth contributions, that can get complicated. I'm not here to resolve that for all the listeners out there. But what I like to do on that is I like to start off with a bit of an analysis thinking about polls, right? So I'll give you two examples where, you know, this is an extreme case. So that really points in one direction versus the other in the traditional versus Roth. The first poll is somebody who's 25 years old. They just got out of graduate school. And so they only work for the last three months of the year. They graduate graduate school, take their licensing tests or whatever, and then start work October 1st. And they're a rookie. They only have three months of income. What they're probably going to do is later in their career, they're really going to have higher income because in that profession, you start off low and then go go up high. So for that first year, that person probably should just be doing Roth contributions because they're at a very low tax rate because they make very little money. And in the future, they're likely to make a whole lot more money because they'll be working 12 months a year. They'll be getting big raises in their career as they you know, move up the professional ladder, right? So that's a poll that says we're young, we're low income. In the future, we're going to be high income. Let's do Roths. Okay, that's one poll. Second poll, I'm 45 years old. I'm making $300,000 a year in my W-2 job. I'm thinking, you know, or self-employment, whatever it might be. I'm thinking I'm going to retire in three years, five years, seven years. So in my late 40s or early 50s and beyond, I'm going to have all this runway to do these tax efficient Roth conversions. What's a Roth conversion? Roth conversion is simply moving money from a traditional retirement account, IRA, 401k, et cetera, into a Roth account and affirmatively paying tax on that transaction. I move the money from the tax deferred to tax-free growth, but I have to pay tax on that. The hope would be that you know, if I'm making $300,000 and I'm at my peak earning years, I take a deduction for traditional contributions, maybe to a 401k, right. and I get a 32%, 35%, 37% marginal tax bracket, tax rate benefit. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe I get 30, 35 cents on the dollar in terms of tax savings, federal tax savings, because I contributed to the 401k. And then in my early retirement, I flip the switch, right? I say, all right, take that money out of the traditional in, in annual chunks and move it to the Roth. And because of things like, you know, I'm early retired, so my taxable income looks artificially low because I just have interest in dividend income, maybe some capital gains, but no W-2, no self-employment income. So what I do is I start filling up the standard deduction with Roth conversions. I fill up the 10% tax bracket with Roth conversion income. I fill up the 12% federal marginal tax bracket with Roth conversion income. And so I've taken deductions at 35% when I was working. I re-include the same money into income at maybe 0% because of the high standard deduction, maybe 10%, 12%. 
The fancy term for that is tax rate arbitrage. I'm basically making money off the government because of these rules that they provide. I didn't write these rules. You didn't write these rules. The government wrote these rules. So I take advantage of just the way the rules work, tax rate arbitrage, and I, I, I develop tax efficient wealth that way. Um, so, but that's the poll, you know, going back to my $300,000 example, that's a poll where, boy, that really screams traditional deductible contributions. So that doesn't answer the question, but what you could do is you could say, boy, where am I on that spectrum? Am I that 25 year old with really low income for a year or two, or am I that 45 year old who might have all these opportunities for tax efficient Roth conversions, or am I somewhere in the middle? Right. Right. Um, so I think that, that helps determine, you know, whether you do traditionals or Roths, I will say another piece of advice, just some free advice, right? It's not financial advice for your circumstances, but it's good educational advice, which is don't overthink it, right? Folks who generally are successful are the ones who build up, you know, assets in these tax advantage retirement accounts, whether it's traditional or Roth, sort of keep the big picture in mind too. We don't have to gild the lily, right? Just build up this wealth so that we have more financial freedom in the future. Um, and then, you know, the, your last question, Paul, about plan selection, boy, that's subjective, right? So yeah. you're asking, hey, there are all these brokerages out there. Which plan should I select? And I think what you need to do is you need to step back and you need to say, what are my tax planning goals and priorities and what's my business structure like? So, you know, there are a couple plans out there right now. I know Fidelity and Schwab, to my knowledge, as of this recording, only offer the traditional solo 401k. They don't offer the Roth solo 401k. So if making Uh Roth contributions is a high priority for you, maybe you don't use Fidelity and Schwab. Nothing necessarily wrong with Fidelity and Schwab. I'm not endorsing them. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just stating a fact. They don't offer the Roth and the Roth is valuable to you, then maybe don't use them, right? That sort of thing to do some research. The other thing too is, and I touch on this in the book, um, it is possible to have... employees that don't work very much for you and still qualify for the solo 401k. That said, that's the tax rule. The tax rule says if you have employees that work less than a thousand hours uh, for you, and then it's less than 500 over each of three years, then you could still have those employees, but not include them in the 401k plan and have your own solo 401k. That's the tax rule. Plans are allowed to make their own separate rule. So, for example, Vanguard has their own separate rule. They say if you have an employee for one hour or $1 a year, you don't get to have a solo 401k. You could do it with your spouse. But outside your spouse, if you you have an employee for an hour a year, you don't get to have a solo 401k with Vanguard. So in that case, you say, oh, you know, I, I have to hire some very seasonal workers. They work 200 hours a year for me but that's it. Those are my only employees. Well, then Vanguard probably is not your solo 401k provider, right? You want to go to one of their competitors just based on the way they structure their plan. So it's very dependent on your type of business and whether you have employees and then what those very specific plan guidelines uh, allow or limit or don't allow. So I, 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 to use the word defined print in those plan documents is really important in some cases when you're making that decision. Absolutely, Paul. You know, so it's a cliche, 
but there really is no one size fits all planning or answer here, right? And that's part of the reason you write a book, right? You say, look, this isn't a simple blog post. This isn't a quick YouTube video. This is something that has some nuance, has some considerations. Is this rocket science? 100% no, it is not rocket science. And I know some of the listeners are saying, wait a minute, it's tax rules. It's so, so complicated. Well, it can be digested. But that said, different folks have, like you're saying, Paul, different business structures, different uh, priorities when it comes to things like traditional versus Roth. And so, you know, folks need to make their own decision. There's no boilerplate, one size fits all. But I think the big takeaway here, though, is if you're a solopreneur, there's so much opportunity, big tax deductions, big retirement savings opportunities. Um, So it's the sort of thing you need to be paying attention to if you're working for yourself or if you're thinking about working for yourself. And I think a lot of listeners out there might be thinking about working for themselves. Right. Particularly as they begin to look at maybe their second career or, you know, let's say they're financially um, independent and they want to do something that rewards them more uh, where they're laying out the possibilities of setting that future. Well, let's let's talk about an example. I've got a I've got a friend. He's my daughter's age little bit older and he started a physical therapy business uh, in Dallas and and has a partner and uh, he's not married to that partner but they both work in the business uh, and and let's say they don't have any other employees could a small business like that could each individual have a solo 401k or is there a, a reason why that couldn't work so generally speaking they can right so it depends on their structure how it would exactly be structured. Um, but it could be that they've structured their affairs such that their business is a so-called S corporation. Okay. In, well, I, or an LLC or. I mean, yeah. So, have- and Paul, you bring up a great point, LLC. So LLC is not a tax categorization. It's a legal categorization that could either show up on somebody's tax return as, there's three ways that could show up on somebody's tax return. Could show up as a schedule C if they're a solopreneur, they don't have any partners. It could Uh show up through a form K-1 if they have partners, or they could make an election to treat that LLC as a so-called S-corporation, and then they'd have W-2 income, right? So there are three ways that can work. Um, Generally speaking, when you have partners or you're an S-corporation with or without other owners, um, the employer itself sponsors the solo 401k plan. Okay. So, and if it's just partners, it's not any other employees, you could still qualify for the solo 401k, you know, consult with the plan in that case. That's definitely one of those where you're going to want to, you know, call up the financial institution, say, this is our structure. We want to make sure we fit all the bells and whistles of your plan. You know, does this all work? Um, But that absolutely can be done. Now it's interesting if the LLC has made an S corporation election, all these limits we've talked about, are computed based off the W-2 income. And if the plan, if that LLC has not made a so-called S corporation and has uh, S election and it has multiple owners, then it files a, they call it a form 1065, and the income is distributed to the partners and reported out to the partners. They call it a form K-1. That right. will then, you know, the self-employment income that comes through that form K-1 will be the basis for any solo 401k plan contribution limits. So it can get a little nuanced, but if you're in a partnership type business or a multiple owner business and you don't have employees, generally speaking, you can qualify for a solo 401k, but that's one of those situations where it's definitely best to call someone up at the plan provider and run everything by them and perhaps also work with your tax advisor as well. 
Okay. Let's talk in a little detail about a phrase that you mentioned uh, maybe uh, in the book. I know it's in the book, is tax planning. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about are, are tools you would use as a result of a tax planning strategy, uh, yep. maybe for the near term, the midterm, and the long term. Um, and there's even a chapter in this book about the solo 401k and how it's a very key tool in achieving financial independence. I think that's way back in chapter 12. Can you talk a little bit about what is tax planning? What is not tax planning? Great question, Paul. So I'll give you what's not tax planning first. What is not tax planning is, all right, I'm going to set up my my tax return preparer, my CPA, my EA, whoever it might be, who's preparing my tax return in February, March, I'll give them all my information, all my income, all my deductions. And now they're going to do some great tax planning for me and we'll get the tax return filed, right? Tax return filing, tax return compliance is an important exercise, but generally speaking, it is not tax planning, right? Tax planning is during the year and maybe even before the year, we affirmatively take steps and make a plan to think about our taxable income, think about our retirement savings contributions, and think about the future. What does my future look like in retirement, right? Do I have an early retirement, a late retirement? Am I going to be high income, low income in that in that space? And, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a tax history. I know some of your listeners, Paul, you yourself are very interested in this personal finance space. In terms of SEP IRA versus solo 401k, it used to be the case that you could basically do tax planning with the tax return filing. So before 2001, solo 401ks existed, but there was no reason to use them because they had they didn't allow employer employee contributions. So everyone before then just used a SEP IRA. And the SEP IRA allows contributions and establishment right up to the tax return filing deadline. So everybody just said, okay, we'll worry about that during the tax return season, right? So we don't have to worry about it. We'll just get that in by October 15th. We file our extension, you know, easy peasy, no real planning needed. Okay. 2001, the tax law changes and it says, oh, guess what? You can now do employee contributions to solo 401ks. It gave the solo 401k an advantage over the SEP IRA. But the world was different in 2001. First of all, there was no Twitter. There was no YouTube. There were no, you know, all these content creators talking about this new change to the tax law. I mean, there was some of that, but it didn't focus on this. Oh, the solo 401k, you could do employee contributions, but you got to set it up before year end. So practitioners were set in their ways. Tax return preparers were used to the SEP IRA. They knew they didn't have to do any planning for it. By you know October fifteenth, you fund it. Great, and people get set in their ways. They just do, and so nobody turned their attention to the solo four hundred one k, especially with no pressure from you know content creators or clients. Nobody was you know ringing the bell, and you still and you didn't need to do the planning. So, and then the other thing is the financial planners out there didn't adopt it either because. The solo 401k was not an investable asset that they could manage. You know, many financial planners use this assets under management model, particularly in 2001. And they weren't going to go set up for their clients solo 401ks. That's a whole compliance nightmare. If you're going to set up your own solo 401k for your own clients, 
there was just no there was no incentive on the financial planner side to move right. to the solo 401k and without that planning though you lose out on these very valuable employee contributions to a solo 401k so that's one of the messages of my book is like hey let's get out in front of this we don't have to split the atom before year end but we do right. need to think about contribution level we need to get the plan established it's an administrative task but it's not daunting and right. we gotta get. We probably have to get an election in place or actual funding in place before year end, either or. Um, so I think there's. It's this sort of accident of history that the solo four hundred one k sort of you know bubbled up to the top, but practitioners were just set in their ways, and so the SEP IRA has gotten too much focus. Look, it can be the right answer in certain circumstances. It's still great if you've built up a lot of tax advantage savings through it, but to my mind, for so many solopreneurs. The solo 401k with some upfront planning is the better path. I think you hit the nail on the head. In 2001, uh, the internet was a different place and uh, social media was, was virtually non-existent. And the fact that people can learn so much in the case of listening to you and your content from competent resources, uh, that when you can quote the IRS code and paragraphs, and I feel good when I talk to a guy like that because I know where to go look for more. I'm not just trusting what I hear and what I see. I'm reading from the IRS website and, and looking at the rules myself. And, um, and that always makes me feel better to verify and validate what I think and then go and pursue it. And, and now there is an opportunity and a platform for you to actually spread the word about solo 401ks. I think that's probably great for the community. Yeah, Paul, and I, you, you raise a great point, right? There is no one person on earth who is just vested with all the tax knowledge and all the tax planning knowledge, right? So I'm a resource. There are plenty of other good resources out there, but you can absolutely, you know, A, do more educational research, do, you know, more reading, right? You can bounce things. Oh, this practitioner, this content creator says X. Let me evaluate that. Let me go to the Internal Revenue Code. And look, I may not be an expert, but I can at least make my own reading of it. And then maybe I talk to my paid, you know, my practitioner, my financial planner, my tax return preparer. And part of why I write a book like this, Paul, is not to give the quote unquote answer to every person in the audience. What I'm doing is I'm giving education to a lot of the folks in the audience so that they now can have a much more productive conversation with their advisors, with their lawyer, their accountant, their tax return preparer, their financial planner. They now can have a much more impactful conversation because they have some education behind them. Right. Absolutely. You know, and there are a lot of references in this book. Uh, I think there's even I don't know, many pages in the bibliography about all the resources that you utilized in writing this book. Even those are great resources to look at. And so being uh, being able to sit down and look at a chapter of this and say, okay, I have a business. It's a large, I've got a large income situation. I got a small income situation. You have different examples in the book for different scenarios. And you also talk about whether you have other employees and, and many of the nuances, but it begins to kind of give a, a, a solopreneur an opportunity to say, you know, which one of these buckets do I kind of fit in? Would this work for me? And take it to their tax accounting professional and say, you know what, I think this scenario would be a great component in my uh, tax planning. And what do you think? Yeah, Paul, so 
I like you teaching and educating through examples. It's just sort of the way I do it. Um, and, you know, different people use different methods to communicate information. I do talk about in the very beginning of the book that, look, any example in the book is it takes a snapshot of a hypothetical person and cannot fold in all of their tax situation, all of their financial situation. But the reader has his or her own judgment to fall back on. So the reader could say, oh, this, this little snapshot, boy, a lot of these components are lining up with a lot of my components, a lot of my fact pattern. But let me think about the rest of the stuff in my life. And, you know, I can now get more educated in terms of making my own decision, whether that's DIY or with the help of another advisor. Right, right. Hey, so while we're on the topic about the different examples, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I see you got a Shea Stadium thing behind you in the background. For those of you just listening, you can't see these things, obviously. But let's let me give you an opportunity to hit a grand slam. If I was to say... Sean, what is the Grand Slam scenario for someone utilizing a solo 401k to literally hit it out of the park? And I mean, you can use all of the things you need to, qualified business income, whatever the scenario is. You tell me, if someone had the planets lined up, it would be a Grand Slam decision. Go ahead, tee that one up. So I've got an example in the book. Uh, I believe it's a lawyer, right? It's a highly... Uh, compensated professional where um, they make so much income that they lose this thing called the qualified business income deduction. That's something, by the way, for those who are not going to read the book, uh, you can go to my blog. I've blogged a lot about this thing called the qualified business income deduction. Uh, Have a bunch in the book about it. Have a bunch in the blog about it. Um, What happens is at certain high income levels, you lose that deduction in most cases. All right. So what you can do, though, at certain levels of income, and I think the example in the book is about 250000 of income for a single person, what you could do is max out a traditional deductible solo 401k, you know, get 61000 in there under today's limits if you're under 50 years old, and you get the tax deduction for the 61000 Great. You know, I'm high income and I get a $61,000 tax deduction. Thanks so much. What a great idea. But it gets better. Because what you also do is you lower your modified adjusted gross income, your taxable income, such that, guess what? You also now requalify for that qualified business income deduction. So the example in the book basically says, okay, I contribute $61,000 to a solo 401k, take a deduction for that. Not only do I get that $61,000 deduction, I also now go from zero qualified business income deduction to something like $32,000. You got to read the book to get the exact detail. I don't remember it off the top of my head. But essentially what we're doing with the solo 401k in that example is we're taking a $61,000 deduction that, oh, by the way, we're just paying to our solo 401k. We're not paying it to charity or for a business expense. We're paying it to ourselves. Later in life, we'll have access to it. $61,000 contribution to my solo 401k gives me a current year $93,000 tax deduction for federal income tax purposes. I mean, that's cooking with gas. That is, you know, if you can get deduct $61,000, but take a $93,000 tax deduction, boy, oh boy, is that something I would, I'd think long and hard before passing up, right? So that would be the example where the solo 401k can really hit a grand slam for certain higher earning professionals. Uh, it can be very, very impactful. 
there may be folks out there with their businesses just getting off the ground and getting started. But the reality is 15 years down the road, let's talk about the guy with the physical therapy business. He could be well into these kind of numbers, you know, and if he's got the roadmap and has the infrastructure in any given great year, he can take advantage and leverage these kind of metrics uh, for tax benefits. And, and the point you made, that's not just a deduction. That's $60,000 is going to his retirement account where it's going to grow. Maybe kind of talk about the ultimate benefit, because let's say when you're 60 years old and you're taking money out of these plans and paying taxes, let's say you're paying taxes at a 10 or 12% rate versus what you would have paid when you earned that money at the maximum tax rate. How, do, how does the math work on that and, and the benefit of time on your money? Yeah, great, uh, great point, Paul, right? So on the other end, what we're hoping to do when we deduct solo 401k contributions is we're hoping that we can re-include those in income later in life, whether that's through an actual withdrawal to fund our living expenses, or that's through a so-called Roth conversion where we're moving it, we're, we're, we're affirmatively moving it from the traditional account, paying income tax, and then parking it in a Roth account where it can always be tax-free for the rest of our lives, right? The hope is that when we get to retirement, we're going to be paying less in tax from a tax rate perspective. And that's a good hope, right? Because two things, contributions in that are deducted benefit from the marginal tax rate, right? So I'm sure the listeners are relatively familiar with this concept. We have progressive tax rates. So the more income you make, the higher the income tax on that level of income. The idea being the wealthier, those who make more money can afford to pay more tax, right? So uh, but the cool side effect of that is our 401k contributions, traditional or solo, generally speaking, benefit from that marginal tax rate, right? So if you make, you know, 180,000, you're in the 32% bracket, forgetting the qualified business income deduction for just a second, you put a dollar into the 401k, traditional or solo, at least initially, it's a 32 cents on the dollar tax savings. But when we later in life, Reinclude that money in taxable income either through distributions for living expenses or through Roth conversions, we get to go back up through those tax brackets, right? And the first tax bracket is really the standard deduction, right? And right. if we don't have any other income or very little other income, we might be reincluding that money in taxable income at a 0% rate against the standard deduction then the 10% rate, then the 12% rate. And so that's one of the advantages of financial independence. If we can retire earlier and earlier, we have more runway to do those Roth conversions at hopefully those low tax rates. And like I said earlier, that's the fancy term for that is tax rate arbitrage. We deduct at a high rate. We re-include at relatively low rates. And look, there's political risk on that, right? So let's talk about that. You know, a lot that's of folks right. are going to say, Sean, wait a minute. They're going to, they have all these deficits. They're going to raise taxes. Well, they may in fact raise taxes, but if you're deducting at 32% and then re-including at 10 or 12%, they're going to have to raise taxes a whole lot. They're going to have to more than double taxes in your retirement to make that a bad deal in, in many cases. Depends on your facts and circumstances, but they're going to have to raise taxes, not a little, but a lot to make that a bad deal for most people. And there's election, there's re-election risk on the politician side, right? So- 
the folks, the the Congress that says, oh, that 10% bracket, we're going to make that 30%, they put themselves at significant risk of not getting reelected. And the right. politicians tend not to like to do that. So, yes, is there political risk on this strategy? 100%. But I think, first of all, I think that risk is relatively low, just considering just how high they'd have to increase taxes. And tax rates are likely to be increased at the higher brackets. This is just my opinion. But they're I, I, more likely yeah. to be ta- increased at the higher rates than the lower rates because there are fewer voters who are subject to those higher rates. A whole lot of voters are subject to those 10 12% brackets. So that's my my take on sort of the lay of the land. And yes, there's some political risk, but the numbers really would have to move significantly for most Americans to make the traditional deductible 401k contribution a bad deal. Right. Completely agree with you on the high rate side. I think there's a lot more risk that the top rates are going to go up then the low rates are going to go up uh, in terms of an order of magnitude. And I believe that it's uh, probably more unlikely that you're going to want to put a significant tax burden on the lower earning uh, you know, employees in the country. Well, and I'll give you one example. So you may recall there was something called the Build Back Better Act that passed the House of Representatives in 2021. And so folks were all worried about it. You know, one of the things that bill did was it said, you know what? In starting in 10 years, if you're at $400,000 of taxable income or four fifty if you're married, you don't get to do Roth conversions anymore. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So you're telling me I early retire, I have artificially low taxable income, and now I can't do Roth conversions if and only if my income's at 400000 Well, for the FIRE community, this was going to be a rule with zero consequence, right? The whole yeah. idea is get to early retirement with artificially low taxable income, most people in the FIRE community could not manufacture outside of massive Roth conversions $400,000 in their early retirement. Just ain't going to happen. Yeah. Passive income is not, yeah, not going to be $400,000. Yeah. So it was one of these things like, oh, Congress is making this new rule and they're clamping down on Roth conversions. But as a practical matter, they weren't clamping down on Roth conversions because nobody at those levels of income were going to be doing Roth conversions anyway. So it was this it was a really silly rule. But taking that one little example, I just don't think a lot of these tax law changes are going to hit the sweet spot of financial independence tax planning when we're in an early retirement. One of the things, you know, I don't want to just uh, leave all other tax beneficial opportunities uh, off the table in this episode. For listeners really starting out and saving income for for retirement, there's a, a probably a good reference on, you know, what should you do first? Your first incremental dollar that I don't need to pay utility bills with, wh- where would I save that? Uh, in the second dollar, in the third dollar, and at what point do you really kind of step into these other areas? Like is the Roth IRA when I have low income and uh, and it doesn't cost me much in taxes uh, to do to do those kind of things. And then as I graduate to higher income, obviously the priorities would change, right? But where where's the first place people need to start when they're younger in their careers? Yeah. And Paul, I have a blog post on this very topic, fire tax planning for beginners. So let's do a little bit of a mini order of operations. Right. And for by all means, before we forget it, there will be links in our show notes to every uh, blog post that Sean's mentioning on this episode. I want to make sure 
your guys are just one click away from digging deeper because the word education is really what's important here is the more you know, the more you know the questions to ask. You don't have to be the expert on taxes. You just need to know the right questions to ask and and have a professional help you if you need to. Go ahead, Sean. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I really want everybody to know we're not in a vacuum. We're going to give you these references. Oh, thanks, Paul. So the first place to look when we're building up retirement savings is the employer match at work, right? So uh, if your employer has a 401k or other plan and there's a match that they make to your contributions into that plan, generally speaking, that's going to be the first dollar of retirement savings you're going to want to do because a match is an instantaneous return on one's investment and you really can't just you can't beat that, right? So guaranteed, essentially. Yeah, it's a guaranteed instantaneous return. So um, you know, and of course, that's later subject to market volatility and fluctuations. But you know, as a as a first step, I think that's a great first step. Make sure you're contributing, generally speaking, to capture the entirety of the employer match at your workplace 401k. Then where do we go? My second spot tends to be the Roth IRA for most beginning retirement savers. The Roth IRA just has so many benefits, tax-free growth. It can be accessed in an emergency. Hopefully, we never have to do that. But annual contributions to a Roth IRA can be withdrawn anytime, tax and penalty-free for any reason. Doesn't mean we should do that, but it's a nice lifeline to have, right? So that's step two. Step three, I think, for many who qualify and can use a high-deductible health plan is payroll withholding into the HSA, the health savings account. The health savings account is just a great account because it can be tax excluded when it goes in. It can even save you on your payroll taxes, right, that we talked about earlier. And then as long as the money comes out for qualified medical expenses or reimbursements thereof, tax-free on the way out. So we're really doing, you know, we talked about tax rate arbitrage earlier. This is real tax rate arbitrage because we take a deduction or exclusion, same thing essentially on the way in. And then it's tax-free on the way out. We're printing money off the government. Again, it's their rules, not our rules. So I think that's a great way. And then the fourth thing in the order of operations, I generally tell folks is save, 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 right? Meaning, um, Yes, you could think about, do I do a Roth 401k, traditional 401k? What's the additional savings here? But, you know, savings tend to be lightly taxed in the United States today. We have things like qualified dividend income rates. We have things like very low long-term capital gain rates. Uh, Even if you invest just through a taxable account, and I'm not saying that's the right answer, but even if you just did that, it wasn't really the right answer, you're still going to do pretty well. So I think it's, that's the, the financial order of operations I've sort of come up with. And look, that obviously can be fine-tuned depending on any particular individual circumstances. But if those were the only four things most Americans were doing, I think we'd have a lot more financial success out there. Right. And you did mention you have a post on this specific topic. So we'll put that in the show notes uh, and readers can look at that and learn more. Uh, one of the, the points you made on the uh, 401k match, when you're talking about that in the order of operations, is it good to just contribute enough where you get the maximum match? Or incrementally, do you need to try to go toward the limits uh, on those plans? 
Yeah. So uh, when I say, you know, when I say get the match, I mean that because that's just the lowest hanging fruit. So I'm thinking about what's that lowest hanging fruit out there, Paul. And I think that is the lowest hanging fruit. Now, if one thinks that's going to be sufficient by itself for your retirement, I think for most people, the answer is no, that's not going to be sufficient. So then I look to what are the next things, and especially for a younger person, I like the Roth. But like I said, these are general rules. I do think there's some advantage to, hey, maybe I just keep plowing into that 401k. Now you have to start asking a few more questions like, what are the investments inside that 401k? What are the fees inside that 401k? I think in most cases, even if the fees aren't so good and even if the investments aren't so good, that instantaneous match probably wins the day. It's hard to beat. It's hard, hard to beat. beat that. But yeah, it just you just need to ask some more questions once you get beyond the employer match. Right. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I, I do want to say, because we could talk for four more hours, there's so much content here that in nuances and and everyone's finance is personal. People say that all the time, but truly there's so many variables uh, in your individual business and your resources and your cash availability and your timing that every individual is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and, and there is a, a lot of uh, breadth to the examples in the book, you know, and it addresses things like side hustlers, solopreneurs, high income earners, low income earners. Uh, the qualified business income deductions, the different tax structures. As you said earlier, this is truly a reference type book. Uh, it, it provides a lot of content. Not everything is going to apply to every reader, but it does kind of flesh out why is a solo 401k a really good tool? Yeah, I'd say that's that's a good way of looking at the book, right? So it's going in detail on a tool that I think, frankly, is underappreciated it's not the right answer for everyone out there, but for many solopreneurs, it is a great retirement savings tool and tax deduction tool. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I'd like to kind of ask you a little bit more about where you're headed. I, I know you've got a YouTube channel. I've listened to some of those episodes and the content is fairly concise and topic specific and digestible. And, and I like that. It's not one of those YouTube episodes where there's 60 minutes talking about, you know, a lot of different things or, and it's hard to find what you're interested in. It's kind of specific. Uh, do you plan to cont continue to create that type of content or, uh, you know, what is your kind of goal with, with media and what you're putting out on content? Yeah. So on my YouTube platform, I'm posting at least once a week, Saturday mornings, and then occasionally a little more as current events warrant or as the solo 401k book comes out. And I'm actually putting some solo 401k content on there. Uh, but we're generally going for under 10 minutes. And so in, in sometimes it's three minutes, right? So from yeah. you know three to 10 minutes, you can develop an idea, do it succinctly, and then move on with one's life. Uh, if you're on YouTube and you're looking for my content, just type into the search uh, tool, Sean Mullaney videos, and it should come up. And like I said, at least once a week and you know, occasionally more, I'm doing some current events and I'm finding that tends to be a little more popular. So I've got that content creation, obviously the book, right? Available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, other outlets. And then I do content creation on my blog, phytaxguy.com. Very generally speaking, I do that once a month. Some months it's twice, some months it's zero, right? So that's a little more sporadic. Oftentimes, there's a tie between a YouTube video and a blog post. 
maybe the YouTube video is the five minute version and the blog post is the 2000 word version, something like that, yeah, where deep reading, right? it's, deep it's a little reading. more deep on the blog, a little more superficial on the YouTube. Maybe you like one, maybe you like both, but that's what I'm doing in terms of content creation. One to many is a great way of communicating and it's something I'm trying to develop. Um, I'm not here to say I'm perfect at it, but I do think I am providing some educational resources for folks out there. Nothing, uh, nothing helps people if they won't take action. And in those first steps, uh, whether it be you know reading more online, buying a book, um, setting up an account, if you don't make those first steps and realize that uh, sometimes we put imaginary walls in front of us and think it's too hard to set up a solo 401k or I'm too busy or whatever. You've got to destroy those inhibitions and move forward if you want to realize 10 years later when you're looking back and say, wow, if I would have just set up a solo 401k back when I was starting, imagine where it would be. Absolutely. You know, there are limiting beliefs out there. There could be limiting beliefs around one's ability to achieve, whether it's financial independence, retire one day, set up a solo 401k, whatever it might be. And sometimes those limiting beliefs are not valid. Right. Uh, as we wrap up, I, I want to thank you again for being on this episode uh, and, and wish you luck. Are there any special events planned next week for when the book launches? Uh, you know, what kind of things are exciting going on for that? So around the book launch, I will be on several podcasts. So, and I'll be posting a lot of that on my social media, right? So you can follow me on Twitter, Sean Money and Tax. Uh, my blog, phytaxguy.com. I'm also planning on releasing some videos on October 4th, which is the official launch day. So that'll be on my YouTube channel. Um, so we're doing some of that. And then for those in the financial independence community, uh, I will be speaking at Camp Phi Southwest. That is Columbus Day weekend. And I know Stephen Boyer is putting some of those presentations up on YouTube. So I make no guarantees. I make no promises on his behalf. But it's certainly possible. I believe there are going to be four presentations at the Camp Fi Southwest. I'm making one of them. It's possible that Stephen will pick mine as one of the ones that he posts to YouTube as well. Well, good luck with that. Sounds like that'll be exciting and, and a nice break from uh, all of the, uh, the book efforts you've had. Uh, well, with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Episode number 16 of the Lauder Podcast with Sean Mullaney talking about solo 401k plans. And with that, we're out. Nothing's far away. Nothing's far away. Nothing's near. Nothing's far away. Nothing's near. Another day, another way. Another day, another way. Pull me, pull me in the sun, in the rain, baby, baby. And now this is the after show question. Oh, there you these go. Are, these are always easy. I just want to ask you a little bit about what is it like to write the book? What is the process like? I have, and in, in my, uh, I'm not in my home right now, but in my home, I've got a filing cabinet and in there is an outline for a book. What kind of got you over the hump and really got it flowing? And uh, did you kind of say, hey, I've got all this stuff. Can I organize it? Or was it, hey, here's an outline. 
these are the major scenarios I want to write about. And you just started writing a chapter every week. Uh, what did you do? Yeah, so I did have a, a deadline for a first draft, and that helped out, right? So it was sort of like, look, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm still a financial planner, right? But maybe I'm just not going to emphasize that as much in my own life. And maybe even some of the blog posting I'm going to de-emphasize as well. And I'm going to turn my writing attention to getting out a first draft. And I, I think a good table of contents and a good out, you know, if not outline, the table of contents to my mind is the beginning of the outline. What I sort of do right. is have that table of contents and then start writing some ideas under each chapter and then you, you sort of go from there. And, and so some of it is just frankly having that focus and a good table of contents in some ways writes the book, in some ways doesn't. And there's always lessons to be learned in that process. The other thing that was sort of interesting in my process, there were delays in 2021 because they were talking about changing the tax law. And so um, there was this thought like, well, wait a minute, if they're going to change the tax law in this way, like, for example, they were going to get rid of the backdoor Roth IRA. That by itself would have required a re, almost a rewrite of two of the chapters. So, you know, it was like, well, all right, hurry up and wait on that. And then even as we got to the finish line, so you may recall in July of 2022, yeah. this news came out of the blue, sort of out of nowhere one day, Manchin and Schumer agreed to a scaled back, build, build back better. And I was like, wait a minute. Well, if they agree to a scale back, build back better, does that get rid of mega backdoor Roth IRA, backdoor Roth IRA? And if I'm going to release this book in early October and that gets repealed in August, I basically can't release that book, right? Because there'd be two chapters that would be heavily impacted. So I'm, I'm you know, all right. And then there's some news reports, you know, leaking out. Oh, there's no tax increases on 400,000 or more. I was like, well, technically that means backdoor Roth IRA survives, et cetera. And then that night, the bill text came out, and I'm control effing in that 725 <laughs> PDF page, you know, file like you wouldn't believe. Oh, and man. I was relieved. And, and so that is, and actually, at the back of the book, I have this little chapter, and I say, "Look, this could change, right? I, I can only, I can only publish at one moment in time, and there's even logistics involved in that. But you know, beyond that, this could absolutely change, and actually." The House did pass Secure 2.0. It hasn't been passed by the Senate. So Chapter 16 is literally like the future of the book. Like, oh, if this passes, here's some things to think about. I don't go into incredible detail, but yeah, this book actually is a tax book that talks about the future a little bit. Now, that may never happen, right, to be fair. <laughs> um, so that is a challenge when you're writing a book that, look, I, I like to think of my book as a tax planning book, not a book about some tax rules. As you saw, Paul, it has to have some tax rules. If we're going to talk about tax planning, that's sort of a necessary evil of my book. Right. But these things do change. I'm hopeful that it, the changes won't be too dramatic between now and the next few years that would keep this book, even if it isn't fully up to date on every last thing, it would right. still remain a very valid planning reference. That's the hope anyway. Right. Obviously, limits change year to year and things like that. But I like the fact that an order of magnitude will probably still be relevant when they when they look at different scenarios and say this is a big opportunity or maybe this isn't such an opportunity you know those kind of things in scale kind of give give the user a benefit i can hear your frustration when when this when this law comes out and 
did they change everything that I just wrote about? You know, so <laughs> pretty, so pretty so far they have not. But this secure 2.0 that passed the house makes some tweaks, and so you know, chapter 16 talks about how, hey, there's some tweaks and this could change a few things that I've previously written about. Here's just a very general sense of how that would happen. This episode was recorded Wednesday, October 28th, 2022.